Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. I'd like to welcome you back to week two with Dr. James McKenna as we continue our conversation into SIDS, colic, breathing, and how our closeness to our babies can protect them. Can I ask one question before we get to the SIDS? Because I want to go on SIDS, but I want to just this over arousal and the crying. I have to have an answer here. So this yeah. is why it is abs- it's a probably useless question, but I'm fascinated by it. And I wrote it down. I'm like, I must know two elements to what you said. One, I think about when we talk about like attachment cries, when kids just hit that big cry, you know, it's almost like it comes automatically like they haven't thought about it it's almost it it tugs at your heart more it feels bigger is there still that automatic cry beyond that seven months when things are just kind of happen really yeah absolutely and in fact that that exists or coexists it's not a denial of the fact that this this other set of structures are beginning to predominate but absolutely, Tracy, and these systems can be completely like independent of each other or even graded the extent to which the subcortical structures are in control or whatever in degrees. It's, and it's a little bit like sleep, how sometimes it, 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 even for usually healthy sleeping people, you can get weird perturbations like waking up and being talking to people, but not you're still asleep and you have no memory because any biological system is imperfect. And not that I mean, I'm not even saying that that reflexive survival related awareness that the baby has isn't in, incredibly important. Um, not trying to belittle that, uh, but it's just, or that, that, that it is not a regular biologically developing system. But as I was mentioning, any biological system is, is, uh, subject to glitches like computers. Why did it do that? You just run it again and it's fine, you know? And you think, oh my gosh, my computer's going, no, just turn it on or reboot it. It's probably going to be fine. And so there's, since it is an electrophysiological system, our nerve transmissions and everything, it's hard to really imagine it like that. But given the wiring and the complexity of it and the development going on, you can imagine that there should be more, not less, of these imperfect systems that were designed to be in the best interest of babies, in this case, because that's what's the creation. So indeed, they can overlap, Tracy, and they're not uh, contraindicated at all or in contradistinction to each other, because you can get these interesting little permutations and, and expressions of those perturbations, you see. Yeah. So that was that- your first question. That was my The second here is a little off, but I before I lose it, you talked, which I loved at the very beginning, about the um, influence of, of breathing on an interaction, even amongst adults. The breathing in, the, the carbon dioxide affects everything. And then you then went to talk about empathy and us as humans being entirely empathic. And I did a lot of my dissertation work was on the empathy piece of of our development. That was my kind of area of interest. And so I go to thinking, suddenly I'm going, well, wait a second, is this breathing? I never would have thought of breathing as providing us our framework for empathy. We looked at theory of mind, we did all that stuff, but I'm suddenly going, okay, I know there's research that links people who yawn, contagious yawns, to higher levels of empathy. And I'm thinking of this mimicking of breathing right as our babies, as you said, they hear the breathing and match. Do you think there's potentially a role in our 
that this speech breathing has actually facilitated greater empathy? Or do you think it maybe went the other way? I, I don't know. I'm just going, is that something that may have facilitated greater empathy? But I think even before speech, we had at least some cooperative right. work in terms of child rearing. But is it a, a chicken and egg question? Or is it, do you think there's something to our speech breathing facilitating the type of empathy that we see in human species now. I don't want this to sound like a cop out, you know, like, oh, everything matters. But in this case, I see it as these systems are co-evolving in relationship to each other and anyone cannot be effective, but in relationship to degrees and the abilities, we also have to judge um, the the extent of an expression of, of something. But I think that the reason why we looking at each other, like you were saying, how hard it is, it is incredibly important because your facial expressions are regulating my emotional system as I talk to you. And in when I'm teaching, you know, as a, you know, I've taught for 45 years, I still need my students to be there and watch their faces. And I am every minute, another part of my brain is telling me, get on with it. This isn't going over. It's not going over well. Change to something. And it is part of this system. I really mean that it is important and it is related. They're all related together. The body temperature of your partner um, and the uh, the oxygen that you're or your CO2 that you're making available to them, but them every minute of it, watching your facial expressions and your pupils of your eyes, you know, that respond, get bigger, not just in darkness, but get bigger when you see something you like and you're excited, you know, and so there really is a something magic about falling in love in your eye pupil shape. But I mean, an empathy itself, that you can look at what's happening to a person, you start to cry. And I, I'm not saying that I'm unique here, maybe I'm on the higher range of empathy. But the second I see someone in a absolute truthful act of sorrow and they can't let's say and keep talking because they are overwhelmed i am overwhelmed reflexively myself before i even have a chance to think of it and i know i can't be different it's like a, a feeling i am that person and honestly i can tell you a little anecdote here I thought this notion of the Victorian fainting because she was too delicate, you know, or he, you know, you've seen those, oh, 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 I can't look at that and they faint. And I don't know why, but I always said, that's ridiculous fainting, you know, you know, like that or something you see. I, I just don't think that's right. Well, I was at a pediatric surgeon's meeting. I was lunch. I was given the talk on my research, mothers and babies, you know, not serious pediatric surgery. And the, the two doctors who were giving this little added uh, black and white film they were going to show, it was a new technique for dealing with bowel obstructions in children. And they whispered in my ear, Dr. McKenna, um, you know, we're going to show this It's pretty graphic. Maybe you might not want to watch it, you know, and I go, you know, as a scientist, and I did have my, you know, you know, anatomy and dissections and everything. He said, oh, no, no, i I'm just totally fine. It does nothing like that bothers me. So they started showing this film and it was, they narrated it and they show a little 12 year old boy on the gurney 
And they said, this is going to be, you know, just say, this is the beginning of the operation. And one of the doctors put his hand in the little boy's anus and started pulling out the intestines like it was a rope. And I'm, I'm going, I, I remember thinking, oh my, my God, what, how are they going to get that back in? And, and it, it was just pulling. And then they finally got to the obstruction and he pulls it out and says, and here's the obstruction. And it looked like a, like a tennis ball. That's all I remember. I blacked out instantaneously, fell off the stage, you know, and I was unconscious for about 10 seconds of the poor doctors. I woke up and all these faces were looking down at me and I got a jolt like, oh my God, I couldn't believe what happened to me because I wasn't, you know, going, oh, oh, you know, I wasn't, it was intensely involved in trying to understand it and, you know, not be horrified with it. But I think to this day, after many years of thinking about it, for a few seconds, my body couldn't separate me from what I saw going on. And the blood just rolled out of my head. And I don't know, went to my colon or wherever it would go. But I was that person, Tracy. Whoa. See, I, I would not have been afraid to walk out earlier. They would have said, are you sure you're fine? I'd be like, nope, nope, I'm going to walk out now. Thank you very much. <laughs> I know my limitations well, and this is The next is time I will, I can tell you. I, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm gone. But oh, my goodness. Using that as an example that that really happened. And I think some of us, and, and it is our em empathy speaking, I think it's true. Like any part of your personality that you have more or less of someone else laughter or what makes you laugh you know things like that so it's very individualistic but nonetheless that we can automatically become the person that is in pain that's drowning and you may not even be a very good swimmer but it uh, becomes almost unacceptable you have to do something and that is a powerful human emotion and we think that that theory of mind that is the basis of this and is so uh, compellingly um, evident um, in terms of what happened to humans throughout our evolution and why we have been so successful and able to spend taking care of not just one dependent baby, but what species actually can, can keep to survival multiple offspring that are born with 25% of their brain volume. And it's because we can't do it alone. We do it in family units, subunits, or we have males, a paternal biology where males can be very much 100% involved in caretaking. And around the world they do and bifurcate in different ways, but males have the same paternal response of oxytocin, prolactin, um, the, and cortisol and testosterone fluctuates with the status of a male in relationship to his babies and partnering with a woman goes down. Um, having the first baby, the testosterone goes down with spending hours with the baby, the tea goes down and it is there to accommodate the babies, their survival. So being a man, if reproductive success is what it's all about, which seems to be, then being a man is yes, these tea, that tea goes down to eliminate unnecessary risk-taking, permitting patience and nurturing of your babies, so on and so forth. But it's a huge issue and can't be separated as you're saying from that instant cry for some babies if they see their attachment figure leave. And then the degree to which all babies, I think, could be pushed to experience that if that threshold reaches some 
high point of suddenly it's beyond what that individual child feels can feel comfort with. Yeah. Love it. Oh my goodness. Okay. You have described really well how the breathing system affected the inconsolable crying, the kind of inability to turn off. But as you were about to get to, it is fascinating that this same system, same glitches seem to have a completely opposite effect when looking at SIDS. Can you tell us what, what is the theory here with SIDS that's happening? Yes. So it has to do with the fact that normal human sleep and rapid eye movement has a very different input with respect to activity of the brain. The cortical area, the again, the, the prefrontal cortex, the judgment, the uh, response to what you're seeing, all of these meaningful, meaningful interactions are occurring in the executive functioning area, the brain, the prefrontal cortex. So REM, as I mentioned to you, you jump in and out of control of breath in rabbit eye movement sleep. And now it looks like in accordance to if you're shocked in the dream, you could even just hold your breath for a second like you would if you were startled, even that. Or breathing faster because someone's really chasing you and you're in your dream, you're afraid, you, you wanna get away. Um, and you know that the, there are uh, proteins that coat your muscles so you can't jump into your dream, et cetera. And you're, you're basically kind of paralyzed in a, in a interesting way, at least the major muscle groups. And that's good because you might run through a plate of glass or go down the stairs and hurt yourself. Um, but that's why you can't run as fast as you can and you can't see what's wrong. I'm not going fast enough. You know, we've all experienced that. But anyway, interestingly, with the dream, you move into your volitional system gets activated and it does. My hunch is that going in to it is easier than relinquishing it to the autonomic system uh, because of the activity that's going on and beyond the breathing, you're seeing things and reacting to it. It's kind of a form of interceptive feelings that you, you can have. And you're going in and out in the dream of jumping in and then possibly passing the baton to the other system where autonomically you're breathing. Maybe it's a quiet moment in the dream. But then when you're going out of your dream sequence, the baton is passed to remain in the domain of the brainstem and tidal volume breathing or maintenance breathing. And what if at the end of the dream when the baton is passed there's no there's no receptor to take it or the degree of stimulation needed for that engagement just doesn't happen for some reason the baby can actually um, quietly suffocate can lose oxygen um, if the baton if there's just a mix up a glitch in that the otherwise very flawless transition at this particular age where they're integrating, that there is a mismatch. And it could be very idiosyncratic, but with huge potential effects. You know, if the parent put their hand on the baby at that second or so, the baby would likely breathe and terminate that, that apnea. And that's why the co-sleeping breastfeeding issue actually is related to diminishing potentially the effects of um, 
of these synchron these this lack of synchrony between the evolving two systems. Because what happens when you're co-sleeping is you're getting streams of activity from all directions, smells even, touches, un unexpected coughs or unexpected events by mother, movements, which is a vestibular cue, you know. And all of those streams have a kind of a could be serving as a backdrop to reminding the baby to kind of be uh, participating in meeting the needs that it has. And so I've argued, you know, that, that, that why you would find um, less SIDS when co-sleeping does occur, and it truly is the case when it's safe and moms are breastfeeding especially, that indeed it, can, it can't necessarily stop the colic or it can't necessarily stop a extra prolonged apnea, but it can make the difference in the ability of the baby to break through it. Because apneas require, this is what I didn't really say, when babies are past that one month or two months, whatever that variability would be, that the baby has to literally, I've seen this, so I, I'm very impressed by this process of terminating an apnea, let's say at three months of age, you see the baby that's breathing and all of a sudden you see it maybe with its eyes closed, kind of frowning like, and then its eyes pop open. And then you see the baby literally trying to break the apnea. The first time I saw it, it scared me to death. And I had to run in there and stop the study. I thought this baby had almost had a SIDS because it was going with its eyes open, trying to, open up that channel. And I, I had all our studies are under infrared videotape. So I, I, you know, ended, I said, oh, I not doing it anymore because I, I think baby really had a problem, but we, we kept the oxygen saturation measurements going and everything. So we knew if something did happen again, we would catch it. Um, so I, the next morning, I couldn't wait for my colleagues to come in and they were people like studying uh, baby, not, not necessarily babies, but knew what these apneas looked like and what was normal. I show them the tape, said, you're not going to believe what I saw last night. And they go, they're looking, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> they go, I said, well, did you see that baby struggling to break the, that's how they do it. Jim, that's normal. I go, oh my God, I thought that baby was really suffocating, you know, just on its own. And I said, no, Jim, it's dramatic sometimes, but that, that's, that baby just did fine. And I said, look at, let's look at the oxygen saturation. The baby's oxygen levels didn't even change, you know, at all. So perfect. did you terrify the poor mother by running in to do this and then have to call her back? Yeah, after? I have to say I, I did. I said, oh, your baby's going to be okay. But, uh, you know, this, this occurred. And I did say, thinking what to make her feel bad. You know, maybe my lack of experience here, but, you know, I just wanted to be on the safe side, you know, so I got her. She was fine. Good. But, I can only imagine if someone came in and I'm in a study with my baby running into the, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> what have I done? So the, the SIDS connection then is making this system a little more precarious, particularly as it's transitioning, because a lot of collateral smaller neuronal units would be involved in the termination of the apneas. And that's why um, I have argued in, in uh, sort of removed from this notion of colic potentially and SIDS as being related originally to a biological system, you know, bigger than either one. 
I think it's fascinating. And it's, I mean, I do, I can see how those systems would become kind of under aroused and the, like kind of this inability to pass the baton or rather have two systems on the baton at once. It seems like it's either two hands off or two hands on. That could be any, but I want to tell you of recent research that actually did verify the conceptual idea that this was really possible. In 2016, a paper was done by Paradis et al., 20 minutes away from my house. Uh, the research was done at UC San Francisco um, Medical Center, incredibly reputable place doing very uh, you know, avant-garde, important research. She published a paper with many of her colleagues. She was the primary author that showed that heretofore, after their studies, never before had a mass a mass, a great number of perineurons were hiding behind the eyes. And on the very first day of life, they began a journey to the prefrontal cortex. And they got there at between about four and six months. Never before had these ever been identified. Nobody knew they were there, but they were literally called perineurons meaning immature neurons. They didn't take the form of neuron they would take eventually, but they started this journey and they migrated up what would be considered the around and to the front of the head and all the way up to the top over this. Well, they had been studying this for five years, but, but it, they were looking at this for one year. Um, and it not only, here's what was so remarkable, not only were they there, these mass there were thousands of them, but the kind of neuron they became was determined during the journey. And where my inference was, oh my gosh, one, 80% of them were inhibitory neurons, which would be related to why the baby can't stop. In the, it's in the angular gyrus, but you know, to be specific about it, but that's not so important. But it, they migrate and most of them will restore the ability to stop the behaviors. It's not just the crying, but it could be other things too. And the balance, it's important for the excitatory and inhibitory neurons to be totally balanced. And, and it was massively overburdened by excitatory neurons. And I thought, holy moly, that is exactly what this model would, would you know, could be explained by. That's that fascinating. In the cry, you know, but just can't stop it. Doesn't have yeah. the same repertoire of skills or neurological development. So that's why I, you know, have been interested in seeing if they used magnetic resonance imaging techniques to study these babies' um, brains. And unfortunately, these were babies that, that died, um, but they could trace through the staining techniques. First, they discovered that they were there because they had babies ranging all the way up, I think, to about four years of age. And it would, I think that it is actually Nobel, potential Nobel winning research. Now think of this, Tracy, from the standpoint that we take to this. Experience is the key to understanding whether neurons are preserved or not, or as this very energetically minded brain, excuse the description, uh, is very economic. It's not going to keep the neurons, the, these perineurons, if they're not used. So what kind of environment would actually maximize the chances that every neuron that's out there is going to end up 
a new neuron in some function arriving at the prefrontal cortex. It, is though, it will be those babies that experience this incredibly rich sensory and intellectual, cognitively rich, at least eventually, environment that's offered by contact and co continuous engagements between the caregiver and the baby. So I was thrilled to see this because how what those neurons become could very well be determined, as we would expect, by the exposure of babies to these experiences. Think of a baby put as soon as possible in a room by itself for six or eight hours, which is a large chunk of a baby that's only lived for two weeks. That's a lot of time. And think about the stimulation from the day of birth, the baby is within proximity and contact and breastfeeding with its mother, the kind of brain that baby's gonna grow versus the kind of baby, this kind of isolated, minimal contact, what kind of brain that baby's gonna grow. So as an anthropologist, to me, this research has so many implications, but not the least of which is the old adage that it really matters, those first early you know, years, two years of life for, for affecting intelligence levels and skills and capacities, what more evidence do you need that these neurons are undeveloped at birth? And they, a lot of them will be lost if the sensory environment that these neurons expect to find isn't there. Now, the environments will be, what, go ahead, Tracy, you've got a question. No, 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 sorry. Yeah, I, I do actually, because I was just thinking about like the role of this environment with everything. You have, you know, as you said, there's this biological element going on. There's the biology of, you know, this asynchrony that seems to be somewhat out of, well, I would say potentially out of our control, but also could it be linked to the experiential element That's of things? Me. So. Yes. Yes, it's not saying that every baby won't have some element of, let's say, just say inefficiency of a system or a neurological engagement of some sort. In fact, um, Daniel Stern, I think it was, argued that about 10% of babies are born with some kind of uh, neurological deficiency, not necessarily life or death, but some deficiency. So obviously the microenvironment to which our newborns are born and, and no one has in a generic way disputed this but i think what this new research shows is it's really greatly potentially affecting what these neurons become and which are regressed or lost and which are preserved and we definitely know that that sensory environment the micro environment is the normative environment for the human infant and that's what the body of the baby expects biologically now, it doesn't get born thinking, yeah, I can't wait for all that contact. No, but its genes know, and the epigenetics are supporting this as well, that held babies have different telomeres and lots of contact versus less contact. So, and Dione, as a neurobiologist, did a study in 2013 that just simply showed breastfeeding, that of course is not just the breast milk and immunity, but contact, more contact, that the white matter, the actual... Uh, glial cells that integrate the nervous system and that move really quick messages all over the nervous system, that they were significantly increased in density as babies were exclusively breastfed. There was a huge density difference, which is a remarkable finding as well, that the breastfeeding compared with the babies that had formula 
um, had a very different set of uh, um, glial cells that were probably preserving um, the retention of those cells and leading to a greater greater density that would mean more efficient communication between different developing systems. And it makes me think to, I, I know in your paper, one of the things that was discussed was there is some evidence for going to back to the inconsolable crying that it tends to be linked with sleep disruptions more mm-hmm. so than usual, including later on. Mm-hmm. But this is where I feel like I feel like we're a wrong society to be looking at that. And I say this out of the idea that our response when kids have this is stuff like sleep training, is more separation, is less of that environment. And I think to families who may be struggling with a colicky baby right now, that potentially providing more of that sensory rich environment, do you think it can overcome what might be happening there? Like, it seems like the way they write about the research, all these things are foregone conclusions that at six, you're going to have problems at 10, they're going to have emotional disturbances. They talk about all this. And yet to me, I think it's almost a, there's something going on. And then we're pushing cultural ideas that take away this environment that they need as babies. And so that's how those problems persist. Is that a theory that at all holds any water there? Um, I think it, it is a very reasonable uh, perspective that you bring, Tracy, and you have good background to to think of it. That's certainly testable, and that's what we should be looking at these kinds. But I think you're totally right. There is a bottom line assumption that is really the opposite of what it should be. And it's not that what I'm saying is that you're going to absolutely uh, – by holding and being with your baby and breastfeeding and doing everything right. It doesn't mean that your baby still is not going to have a period of inconsolable crying. But what I could guarantee from the 40 years of research I've been involving in, whatever it is, it's going to be less and over quicker than if you hadn't given this baby all of this continuous contact. With with inconsolable crying baby, you're looking at a dad that had had it and this baby of ours had exclusive breastfeeding and everything. And for, you know, maybe two weeks or something, um, maybe not quite that long. It seemed like it came on quick and left quick, but this baby got continuous, if not less, I don't think he could have ever gotten less, but he got tremendously uh, sensory contact with his mother and his father, practically continuous while this went on. And it was hard because you just are scared, well, you know, you, you, the baby looks like he's really in pain or in fear. I, now I've changed it to the baby is afraid. That's what that look is. It's not necessarily pain. Um, but I'm just saying that first you set it up that it would be by all the talk, touching to begin with, you're bringing whatever that deficiency may be, it's very likely that you're doing the very best thing you could possibly do to help them overcome it for sure. And or that when they do have it, it might be for a shorter period of time if you sustain that just what babies need is no matter what, that contact, that contact, that contact. I think that's so important to bring up because I know I was very lucky. Neither of my kids had caught. Well, my daughter did for a bit when we discovered a dairy allergy. So she really was in pain. And I remember being like, this is a pain cry. Like it even felt different than fear. But my kids didn't have that. But my sister did. And I'm almost 14 years older than her. So I have very good memories of all of this. And my mom used to recruit me to when she needed the break, she would recruit me to hold my sister. 
And I'd sit in the rocking chair and I'd have to put on, I found it so distressing to be with her, but I would put on my headphones and listen to music to try and just keep the cries so that I could have the physical contact without feeling, because it is so hard. You don't know what's wrong. You feel hopeless that you can't change it. So I think it's really nice to hear that that contact actually is doing something very positive. Yes, I totally have to believe that. Not from the fact that the research has been done that shows it yet, but from all the subsidiary lines of evidence, it would strongly suggest that if this could be done and looked at in any systematic way, that indeed you would find that the cases are uh, less, are, are cut short or have less durations and the ultimate severity of it, whatever way they would be measured, um, would be less and get you'd be your baby would be back, you know, so to speak. And I wanted to just tell everybody that um, I realized this is these are huge, complex issues. And I make a big point of saying quite in the beginning of this paper, should anybody be interested, that this is a conceptual model. It's really incomplete. And it's proposed to change the discourse around colic. It's been talked about for almost 70 years now. And nothing has moved here scientifically about what it could be. And I think that it may not just be explained by this, but I think this is a very reasonable set of hypotheses to lay out because it can be really justified even more than you've gotten from this little talk. And I referenced those studies of SIDS that show the suggestions that the neurological system that I'm talking about is not developed as well as it should be. That's manifested in different types of sleep and babies have less control over swallowing and and various other manifestations. So there is a lot of data that is provided that obviously I I don't want to intimidate you by naming all these structures that have been looked at and what they might mean. But if anybody is particularly interested, they're very much in evidence there and, and cited. So you could really check them out should you, could you like to. And may I ask, do you have a bit more time for me to ask a few more questions? I know I've kept you for so long, but there's a a couple here. It's just so fascinating. I love this work so much. And it is, I will link to the paper. Tracy yourself. (laughs) We'll see if I can. Well, here goes one of my questions here, just to add to extending the framework or thinking about this. As you said, we know breastfeeding is protective against SIDS. And one of the things that I thought of when I was reading this was this idea of, I I now go to Stephen Porge's work on the myelination of the vagus nerve and the autonomic nervous system from breastfeeding, the specific effect that breastfeeding has on myelination there. And you brought up the glial cells, and I remember that paper as well. Could it be that part of the protection of of breastfeeding is actually this more developed autonomic nervous system, which allows it to kind of the way you describe that losing the baton, you know, the volitional system goes to hand it off and the ANS is like, "Eh, sorry, I dropped it. Um, It's less likely to do that because of this myelination, the length of the glial cells and everything like that. Do you think that could be hypothetically? I wish I had thought of that bit. I know his work and everything, but you're totally right. That would be very relevant to this. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll quote you the next time I. <laughs> <laughs> right. another little line of supportive evidence for thinking 
thinking like this about these issues. Well, it because it, it does seem like it's one of the, and then it goes more to that breastfeeding on demand and those overnight feeds too, because as you said, you know, we the research on glial cells was exclusive breastfeeding. But as far as I know, there isn't a lot of research on the breastfeeding on demand overnight and the links mm-hmm. towards that development. Do you know it? Do you know any? Like, I mean, we've looked at it. You've looked at it with respect to to co-sleeping and SIDS in general. But in terms of this autonomic nervous system development, is there potentially a link to this kind of overnight feed or is daytime feed potentially enough? Like, No, you know, honestly, this question kinds of these questions that are really important come up a lot. Once we think the American Academy of Pediatrics and the science comes up to this, then all these questions can be kind of be funded because it's thought to be important. And that's what I keep telling my NICHD friends that, well, at least they were once friends when, until I went the other direction, but um, that this is important and not going away and not to have research that's answering these new questions coming up. Once you make the assumption that co-sleeping is the normative pattern, it gives an opportunity to actually explain why babies have developmental trajectories that are, can be very, very different and why babies and at different ages even respond the way they do. That was the trouble with the paradigm. There was no nothing, no theory to explain why babies acted the way they did. And that's what's so honest and so powerful about an evolutionary perspective that can be gleaned a lot of it from our non-human primate relatives and not that all the laboratory work, you know, could these days be justified, but the separation studies are really very telling, as is the skin-to-skin kangaroo studies, that everybody thinks, oh, that's so sweet and so nice. And I think there's a bias about mother-infant studies that anytime you say, oh, it's great for the babies and mothers to be together, most some people will think, oh, that's such a nice social idea, but now let's do some real science. And, you know, I really think that that blocks and it's unfair and it's inappropriate. This is not just a nice social idea. This is the science and anybody that doesn't get it, they're not doing the correct science on babies because it comes back to Winnicott's statement. There is no such thing as a baby. There's a baby and someone. And that is such a absolutely powerful beginning point that would change entirely the scientific pediatric paradigm on thinking about what causes babies to get certain even diseases and issues and even um, childhood cancers. And we know that there's preliminary work showing that, that it isn't, you don't find it among babies that are exclusively breastfed. Yes. I, I love that you just brought that because it does drive me nuts. I see it as this soft science, yes. little frivolous stuff that comes up. And yet, I don't know. We were all babies. We grow up to be humans. If we want to understand everything else about human development, how do we do it without understanding the foundation yes. where we all started? And like, you, it's within the even science area itself. The O'Bounty did a meta-analysis of hundreds of skin-to-skin kangaroo care, call it what you will, studies. And I'm just going to tell you one of her findings. There was 37% less infant mortality for the babies that had skin-to-skin contact. Much less sepsis, if any. Hypoglycemia out the window. Um, Various kinds of 
dysenteries or intestinal flares, the, the number of babies that came back to the hospital, hugely different among the babies that received the contact. And Tiffany Field found the relationship between touch and body you know, physiology is critical. Babies massaged for 15 to 20 minutes every day, they put on on average 47% daily weight gain compared with what they were putting on before. That's not a nice social idea. That's the digestive system, maybe because of prolactin being released or oxytocin is more flexible and can absorb more calories, making the baby gain more weight. It's so much more than, as you're saying, Tracy, this isn't that cute? Oh, I love that finding. Yeah, yeah. Now let's get on and do science, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's, well, I have one more question pertaining to this kind of offshoot here for me. And that's to do with stress. Because when I read the over and under arousal hypothesis here, I started thinking about our stress responses and how we kind of have, you know, our fight or flight or our freeze, where we either get hyper into it, or we freeze and think it's a life or death. And with SIDS, it seems like, and again, linking it back to these experiential behaviors, if you don't have that sensory rich environment, it would seem that that could be a trigger to I am actually in mortal danger. Because if I was not in mortal danger, I'd have someone holding me, I'd have this information that would be telling me, what's going on. And therefore I wouldn't feel that way. And with that, sorry, sometimes my ideas, I just go here to here to here to here. And then I'm nowhere. (laughs) If you're following, but then I go to the issue of SIDS and daycare where, you know, we know that outside of safety issues, daycare in the first day and week is its own independent risk factor, even when they follow all the safe sleep. And so I can't help but think that that has to do with the stress response of being with that intense separation from someone you trust, from being overstimulated with, I mean, goodness knows what's going on in a daycare environment. But how do you see the stress system playing into either of these, the over or the under arousal? Is it also, I mean, we know it's linked to the autonomic nervous system, but is it its own piece to the puzzle, some other interaction or part and parcel of the over and under arousal? Well, it could be related. I don't have to really think about that, but I would say that, you know, Niels Bergman, or at least his work, who does so much with kangaroo skin to skin contact. He says it right when he says, when a baby is separated from its mother, it's in a neurological crisis that its body knows something is wrong. If the baby doesn't say, oh, where's my mom, you know, but its body is knowing something is, is really off, that its survival is threatened. And indeed, that is why the babies cry reflexively. They don't know why they're crying. They're not trying to cry, they cry because they're protected. Interestingly, the babies that are hidden and mothers go off and forage, they don't cry at all in their mother. In fact, they don't poop and they don't cry. And our babies poop and cry because continuous contact and proximity and that breast milk, of course, is low in calories. All of that is the body expects always to be with someone, even though the baby doesn't, quote, know that cognitively. So his body will immediately go into a protective 
stage. The first, if the baby can, is going to retrieve the caregiver by crying. That's what the cry does, aside from hunger and pain. The other is to retrieve the caregiver. And usually babies aren't going to be gobbled up by predators that are hearing the baby cry because the baby's always with the mom. But I think your freeze idea is really interesting. And then I'm going to vacillate a little bit between putting unrelated things together. But it could be like the babies or us, we are at a stage where it isn't just a reflexive get out of here or start fighting. It's I have a decision to make. What's the best strategy? I mean, you're not saying what's the best strategy, but you're figuring out what you should do. I don't know what freeze means in the technical way, but I'm thinking that you're not doing anything, but you may not be truly frozen. You're frozen in an indecision at that moment, but you know that there are alternatives. What do you do in this situation? What would be the best move? So maybe that the, the freeze is actually a, a stage that there are there's more than fighting or fleeing. There might be something else. And maybe that freeze, but I do know, just come to think as I'm talking about it, there are animals that just try to minimize their body presence. And I guess that could be a motive if you can do that. Um, that have, would have a different origin than what I'm describing. It's mm -hmm. not cognitive or close to it. It's just reflex, stay still, don't move, you know, use your body as a shield, you know, and, and something like that. So I or even those animals that kind of, I think about my poor cats who torture chipmunks and the chipmunk looks dead in their mouth until they drop it. And then it kind of overcomes and goes out. So that kind of, again, that, that mortal threat leads to this kind of shutting down in some yeah. way, but it's true. I don't know if that shutdown also leads to a thought process of, okay, now what? Because my mobilization isn't working. I can't fight or flight. So now I've got to run through what else to do. I would imagine, too, that since predator-prey behavior evolved in relationship to each other, that that freezing position couldn't really work in situations where the animal's going to be killed with one bite. You know, it's not going to work. So my guess is that the animals that do that, they're preyed on in a different way than, you know, other animals that you know, like what would be zebras or whatever, ungulates, many ungulates, they got to run like crazy and such. But fascinatingly that you would raise that. Um, have you ever read the book, Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers? Yes, yeah. I have. <laughs> and, and I just thought that was that one thought. Was, how fascinating. Yeah, the, yeah. the poor zebras scared, or you could say the physiology would suggest it when they're running from a, a lion. But it's really true that once it's done, it goes all over with. It has nothing to do with me. And they just eat and they're not worried about the next one. <laughs> just, I know, right? Not even there at all. But I do. When I think about it with babies, I think about the level of, of stress that must occur at a physiological level when they're separated yeah, from their caregiver. And which then, you know, suddenly as you were talking, made me think about, you know, I know we have the breathing that kind of consolidates around seven months. We also get the beginning of object permanence mm -hmm. and that awareness of I can cry and I know you are out there somewhere, which I wonder if that also decreases the stress of those situations at a, at a baseline level of it's now stressful, but it may not feel like, okay, 
I'm dying now. Something is going to come and eat me. I mean, I know they're not cognitively thinking that, but at a genetic level, if I'm alone, something horrible has happened. And that can at least subside a little bit with respect to how active or inactive the autonomic nervous system is. Right. Yeah. It's, um, uh, Nielsen's really, I think, illuminated the neurobiology of, of stress for babies and such. And, um, I do, I do think that, uh, cortisol is always there. I mean, it's not the boogeyman hormone. I like to say, listen, this does everything. This is a friendly situation. It's important that cortisol flows when things are wrong to stimulate those reflexes, whatever the species that you're likely to call back the caregiver or whatever. So this is, this is good. The, the difficulty is with chronic cortisol release um, that you could get as, um, you know, our friend, I'm blanking on her name right now, Wendy Middlemas showed that the baby retained the high levels of cortisol, even though mom was feeling great, their baby was happy, but the cortisol levels remained high after the sleep training. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting and kind of scary. scary. It is yeah, scary for epigenetics too, that it actually changes the telomere or the DNA, you know, it is, uh, I, I find, yeah, the stress, I always remind people like cortisol. also it affects, you need it to digest food. If you don't have any cortisol, you're not going to, you're not going to wake up. You're not going to do anything. You need cortisol. You just don't want too much cortisol yeah. and you want to be able to buffer it back down. Cause that's the other part of that co-regulation piece like right. that experiential breastfeeding, co-sleeping, everything. When our babies do experience stress, you're right there to kind of bring it back down. And I think about the colic and, you know, I did have friends that would report they had colicky babies, but they said the only thing that helped at all, not fully, they still got a lot of the crying, mm-hmm. was holding their baby all the time. Right. You know, right. they had the, and the comment of, I can't do this all day. And I'm like, what baby wearing's for just yeah. grab a carrier and put it on and go about your day that's how it you goes know, i know ron barr who's a wonderful pediatrician in vancouver and has done some ev- what we would call evolutionary medicine and he studied these issues of caring he had wrote that paper that showed 47 percent less crying when babies are highly carried during the day and everything um, and he thought that colic wasn't something that babies have it's something that babies do and it it, it makes a really interesting point that they do it and that it actually fits more into this developmental model they do it because there's a there's a lack of this synchrony between these balancing forces now you could kind of put it between the inhibitory versus excitatory neurons as well as just the general maturity and integration of those different those three major nerve tracks that i wrote about in that that paper but I always thought, I always make that distinction to my students. And I know it won't sound very logical to say that, but you'll understand someday, I think, what he means by that. It's not a disease. You know, it, it's an expression of something going on that may be normative on the range of continuum of some babies. And I would explain it by the complexity of this integration of these two very different breathing control systems that are critical to vocalization, whether it be pleasant talking or crying um, and how you get that capacity, you know, to be human in that manner. 
Well, I love it because I always heard colic was the five letter word for we don't know was how I always heard it described. And I'm now going to say, actually, maybe we will know soon enough. We have ideas now. But that is I love that, though, something they do. That is a very profound statement on that. So you do. I thought it was very interesting because, you know, you hear parents and, and I understand it. And I'm just making the observation that it's almost like a sad thing. They say, Oh, you know, my baby has colic, you know, as if it's a, oh, you know, I'm so my sorry. My baby has two heads. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure what to and do. Having been a dad and mom, my wife sitting over there going through it, it, it it's heart wrenching and difficult, but some parents lose that patience with their babies and think it's on purpose, you know? And I think that's, if this, conceptual model is correct it certainly would be grounds for saying okay parents please this baby's being victimized more than anybody you know not by its own volition if you yes. will <laughs> the volitional part is working but in <laughs> not in conjunction with the autonomic part that's yeah. really only yeah. volitional part happening there is to do with breathing so it's yeah. um oh wow jim i am i can't thank you enough for this this has been absolutely incredible. Your work is just so, I I love that you are supposed to be retired. Uh And (laughs) right, Tracy, you'll be like all of us, you know, you don't ever retire. You love, you do your work because you love what you're doing and you always feel so lucky. And so, yeah, you can hang in there. I I hope so. I I hope to do it. I mean, I might retire a bit more than you. I'm not sure I'd be giving four talks in a month and hopping on and everything else. I might spend more time at the zoo, but that, and just for me, not even with the grandkids. So keep up what you're doing because it's really been so supportive and valuable for many of us working. Well, thank you so much. I just, I am so excited to have been able to talk to you about this after a couple of years. It is so lovely to see you again. It is just incredible. Same same for me too, Tracy. Uh, Well, I thank you again. I will have links for this paper and anything else up in the show notes so everyone can access it that way. Um, And I can't wait to see what you do next so that I can bring you back on again and cover in depth even more. So... Keep your fingers with me. crossed. I can get those people over at UCSF because I think if I had a chance to tell them why this would be interesting, I'd say like when I first started my research and didn't know anybody to where's the sleep lab. When I was done with my 15 minute reasons why they said, when do we begin? Because the yeah. material sells itself here. You know, it really does. And the thing is, it's so logical. What got me is I almost forget it is just a theoretical framework because you know, I always think about it in legal terms. It's like the perfect circumstantial case. Gosh. You have, it, it is the, if you were. I that, that exact word myself, I said, well, one way to say it, it's, it's a really great circumstantial like, argument. It is. It is. It's a circumstantial case. And I would vote to convict if I were in <laughs> any court there or acquit, whatever you were going for. But That's that true. is how I feel of it. And so I sometimes, you know, when I talk about it, I literally am ready to just take it at face value and after, no, 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 no. We need the research on it, but it just, it makes so much sense. It fits with all the other research. When I say circumstantial, just so people understand. Right. And if you read the paper, you will, there is a wealth of research that supports this. It's just Mm -hmm. surrounding the question instead of, 
getting right at it. And it's that right at it that is clearly needed. And I hope you can talk to you just go, I guess in COVID, you can't just go over and knock on their door and be like, let me in and let's do this. But um, hopefully you can. And I've written already this huge letter trying to, I say, Jim, maybe you should just said, could I meet with you? (laughs) 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 Okay. Well, thanks Uh, very much, Tracy, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Okay. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening over these last two weeks. I sincerely hope we'll see more research in this field in the future, as I do believe Jim is truly onto something here. Join me next week as I dive into a bit of a tricky topic, that of how people of color and immigrants experience living and parenting within a framework designed for white people, especially when it comes to discipline. I'm joined by anti-racist scholar Dr. Paula Jay, who's studied this extensively, and I can say that this conversation should leave you thinking about it long after the episode ends. In the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.